You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, not only a tale of somebody who's been to combat, but somebody who is doing the most with what is going on in America today. We'll get to that coming up here in just a minute. want to remind you guys about a couple of things. Please hit the Apple Podcast Reviews. It really is going to help us grow. Again, we want to crack the top 100 Apple Podcasts, so we need you guys to get on there, leave a short review. It doesn't have to be anything long, and here is like a perfect example of a review you can leave. We just got this one from Papa T-Dog. This is literally the best podcast on all platforms. Thank you for telling the story of all these heroes. Any way we could get some African-American hero stories told in light of Black History Month. Thanks again. Awesome podcast. These stories need to be heard. Thanks, brother. And he gave us five stars. So please give us that five-star review. I do want to address the feedback from Papa T-Dog. Obviously, we understand historically that we have not had a lot of African-Americans on the podcast, or a lot of females for that matter, but it's certainly not for lack of trying. We're constantly looking for more diversity in our guests and the stories that we're telling, uh, and that includes translating to different genders, ethnicities, races, whatever. A lot of the time, it comes down to who we can actually get to agree to come on. Like We reach out to everybody. There is no sort of you know specific story that we're looking for, uh, but we reach out to everybody and without getting too invasive or too creepy or too annoying. It just depends on if they respond back to us. So that's a big determining factor in who we can get to come on the show. And look, the bottom line is, is that if you know of somebody with a story of combat and survival and you're living the values that we aspire to uphold through sharing these accounts, we want to tell your story in the podcast. It's as simple as that. And you can help us out by sending a suggestion. So if you have contact information on a person or can make an introduction, we are all ears. In a greater sense, that helps you, the listener, be a part of the show in a bigger sense as well. So again, if you have suggestions, send us an email, producer at hazardground.com, and we'll certainly do our best to get everybody on that you guys want to hear, regardless of race, ethnicity, and gender. Again, we want them all, and certainly we will do our best to focus on the minorities within our service and in our ranks to tell those stories as well, because they are so very, very important. All right, we are one step closer to the big announcement we told you guys about, and I'm going to let you have a little bit more information. And basically, we are partnering with a company, a veteran-owned company, um, that is going to help us add a video component. And the Hazard Ground is going to be part of building the foundation for a military-related media arm of this company. And we are going to be the content creators of it. So we are going to go multi-platform. And I I want to tell you the company is, if you guys have listened to us, you might be able to take some well-educated guesses. If you follow me on social media, you might be able to take some well-educated guesses. I have a very strong history with this company. And in fact, one of the uh, high bigwigs in the company was a former guest on the Hazard Ground. But this is really going to take everything we're doing to another level. We're just waiting for our press release to come out before we make the official announcement. So again, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's. But really, this whole podcast is going to be taken to another level. Video component, military-related media arm, different shows, different concepts, just a whole bunch of things that Hazard Ground is going to be a part of. So stay tuned. I know I've been kept you guys hanging on for a long, long time. 
but just hang on a little bit longer. Don't forget to check out our website, hasaground.com. Don't forget about our Amazon promotion as well. Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Hasaground, at Hasaground Podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Thank you so much for being patient with me. Now on to this week's episode. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground Podcast is a retired Navy corpsman who spent 13 years in the Navy with a deployment to Afghanistan, and he founded the organization Continue to Serve, which is a group of veterans committed to advancing social justice initiatives like Black Lives Matter, and his organization was also part of a group of veterans who worked to clean up the Capitol and the city of D.C. after the attack on January 6th. He is David Smith joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. David, welcome, and thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, 13 years in the Navy uh, and one deployment to Afghanistan. Uh, and you just got out recently uh, this past December. Now, we usually ask about how you got into the Navy and why, and that's the very beginning. But I'm kind of curious. Uh, the first thought that popped into my head, 13 years and out. Um, usually when you get past 10, people just walk down the rest of the hill to 20. What happened? Yeah. Uh, well, actually, so that was um, I was due to medical issues okay. so i uh so i was uh, medically discharged unfortunately gotcha. uh, but okay. that was that was where that kind of went um but it's uh, uh it's all good i mean you know uh to be perfectly honest the reason i got out is because uh i didn't take care of myself initially so um i battled with ptsd for about 10 years um while i was still in the navy and uh it you know it, it really got to me at one point and then um it took me on a pretty pretty tough ride um, so, you know, I'm actually okay that you asked that question because it's, it's just a big issue, right? That we don't address mm -hmm. uh, PTSD when it needs to be addressed because we think we're, we're, you know, not that person or we think we're not going through that, that those issues. It's, um, it's always somebody else. And so, um, so yeah, so that was kind of my battle and, um, you know, I'm, I'm through that fortunately, and I came out of it on the other side. Okay. But, uh, it was definitely, uh, a rough ride for a couple of years there. All right, we'll dive deeper into that uh, coming up, but let's now go back to the beginning. How and why did you start in the Navy? Yeah, so, um, you know, was had been in the, I tried to join the Navy when I was right out of high school. At the time, there was um, not a lot going on. Um, it was during the Clinton era, there was, uh, a, you know, kind of a downgrading of, of a lot of things in terms of operations and all that. Um, so, I had some medical issues that wouldn't let me in. Of course, uh, you know, when uh, there's a war going on, those <laughs> tend to not be an issue. So um, when I was, uh, uh, it was 27, so I was basically a grandpa is what they called me when I was at boot camp. Um, and uh, I just decided that I needed to change my career is really what it came down to. I'd, again, I'd always wanted to join. And, um, you know, so um, part of it was when 9-11 happened, I was engaged and uh, my fiance begged me not to join. And so uh, when that marriage ended, <laughs> I went and signed up is essentially what it comes down to. Um, but um, but I've always wanted to serve. I always wanted to be in the military. Um, my grandfather and grandmother was in the military. I had several uncles in the Navy. And so uh, it was just kind of um, something I always felt a calling to do. And um, And so, yeah, so that was pretty much why I joined. Well, look, and similar situation, I, I, I always tell uh, folks, you know, my personal story, when I signed up, it was during the Clinton years, and it was like, all my friends were like, why aren't you getting a real job? You know, like, because back <laughs> right. then, you know, uh, you just you didn't need to join the military. There were so many other options at the time 
We were Absolutely. the greatest economy in our country's history. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, th- there was no reason for people to – people joining the military at that point were avoiding something, right, or couldn't get a real job or, you know, uh, <laughs> running from something kind of deal. So I, I certainly understand that. Um, yeah. So when you, when you join up, did you know you wanted to do the Navy or was it one of those recruiting stories where that's the guy who was in the office at the time? <laughs> no, I, I don't know why. I just always had, I mean, you know, my, again, my, my uncles were in the Navy, my, my grandparents were, and I don't know, honestly, I don't remember what it was that just specifically drove me there, but that was just the first office I wanted to go to. And, um, when I started talking to the recruiter there, you know, he was, uh, he was a good talker. So he, uh, he, I just never ended up going to any other recruiter office. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and I was excited too. I mean, I knew, kind of an idea of what I wanted to do. And I wanted to um, either get into, I kind of had just this idea of, you know, starting over and starting fresh with a new career. So um, it's kind of interesting when I went to MEPS, they uh, wanted me to be a CB because I was, I had construction experience. And uh, so I joked around with the chief at the time. I was like, look, if I wanted to get shot at and build stuff, I would just stay where I'm at in the town I'm at. Um, and so, cause I kind of lived in a rough area at the time. So I was like, uh, you know, I'd prefer to per, prefer to do something else. And so that was, uh, kind of when I got to be a, uh, found out about what a corpsman was down the medical route. So I was very happy about that. So your Navy career starts off. Where do you end up going first? What's your first duty station and, uh, how, and how quickly do you end up actually getting deployed? Um, so I was actually a reservist for most, of my time, but I spent about three and a half years on active duty. Um, so I went through A school, B and C school. Um, and, you know, so I went through core school and then field med. And then after that, um, which that took a while because it was 2010 when I joined. So there was such a huge need for corpsmen at the time. Um, my entire, almost 90% of my boot camp was, was all corpsmen, which was kind of weird that it was, all of us went to boot camp together. Then we all went to core school together, and then we all went to field med together. It was um, um, it was pretty awesome in that regard because we had been together for you know almost a year at that point, or a little over that. And so um, I ended up actually getting put on hold, and I worked at um, the while I was waiting to class up with uh, field med. And so I worked for uh, almost four months at the uh, Camp Lejeune Naval Hospital, or I'm sorry, the Lejeune uh, Naval Hospital, and uh, and so. Um, you know, we, that was, that was pretty much where I got started. Um, my master chief there, uh, asked me if I had kids and I said, yes. And he was like, okay, perfect. I know where I'm going to put you. And I was like, what does that mean? And he says, uh, I'm going to put you in labor and delivery. So that's where, and I said, really? And he said, well, I'm not going to put an 18 year old in there. You're going to have to go in there. So anyways, so my first duty station was, uh, was technically the, uh, the labor and delivery deck of the Camp Lejeune Naval Hospital. Wow. That must've been fun. Like when you, when you get there, it's like, this is not what I signed up for. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, not exactly what I had in, uh, had in mind, but you know, it was, um, it's, it's, it was a good experience. I, you know, it always is, uh, in the Navy, you figure out what your job is and you just, uh, go with it. All right. So after delivering babies, uh, what's next for you? So after that, um, I go to field med and I learned my first lesson with the, with the Navy and how things work because, uh, all of the guys were getting deployed to Afghanistan immediately that were on active. Um, and so I, put in a request to go so I could go with, um, all these guys I had trained with. And, uh, I was then told that I had to go back to my reserve center and basically it came down to budgeting. If they would have sent me straight out of 
C school to the deployment, active duty would have had to pay for me. Whereas if I go back and check in at the reserve center uh, and then deploy, then the reserves has to pay for it. So since I was uh, what's called an NAT or NAT, they they made me um, go back to my reserve center. So then it took me another two years of <clears throat> emailing everyone. I mean, I was emailing 06s. I was emailing anyone I could get to, to listen, to try and find a point of contact. There had to be a detailer somewhere that plugged in uh, field corpsman. And so it took me, took me about two years to find that chief. And when I finally found him, it was, that was, it was a pretty easy connection after that. So um, I, uh, I ended up deploying uh, with a reserve battalion out of Corpus Christi, Texas, first battalion, 23rd Marines. And um, so that was that was when we went. It was in 2010. So I joined in 2007. So it took me it took me about three years to get to that right, process. So that's an interesting time in Afghanistan because you know Iraq is winding down at that point in time, or at least theoretically beginning to wind down. And you know, uh, I, I say that because you get to Afghanistan at a time where violence is ramping up. Um, the, the mission set is growing. Right, we're, we're putting more and more troops on ground there. So, yep. what was your mission when you got there? So uh, we kind of got piecemealed out. Um, Alpha Company went to Sagan. Uh, Bravo went to Delaram. We had Weapons Company on the wall at Camp Leatherneck. And then uh, we went down south to a patrol base called PB Baldak. And uh, it was actually a, we shared the base with, um, the, uh, with the Brits. So it was a pretty interesting, um, pretty interesting time there. Uh, and uh, but we would basically spend about three or four weeks down in at PB Boldak, and then we'd go back to Leatherneck for a week um, to do QRF and do some northern patrols. So that was just kind of our rotation while we were there. Um, we didn't really, fortunately, you know, um, our company didn't really do a lot with direct contact, but we did have a lot of IEDs, so that was the biggest issue we had. Um, but Alpha was in Sangin, so they were they were definitely dealing with a lot of stuff, and that was where we lost some guys, and um, things were a lot tougher up there. When you talk about losing some guys, uh, what's that experience like for you? I mean, it, it's kind of almost full circle. You go from the beginning of your career of bringing people into this world to watching people depart it. So, yeah, uh, what's what's that experience for you? You know, it's it's interesting. Um, I had a you know many of the times when you're sitting out on a, you know, you're just sitting out uh, on Overwatch at one night on patrol, and you're just sitting there. Um, so my sergeant and I were talking um, about the the kind of the blessing and the curse of being a corpsman, being that you know, you train and you train and you train and you want to know that you can do your job. But then at the same time, the, the last thing you want to do is have to do your job um, because that means somebody's hurt. Um, and so, you know, and, and what's unfortunate actually about the guys we lost, we didn't even lose them to the enemy. It was the, we're the only um, battalion, at least, at least at the time, I don't know if it's happened since, but it's, as far as I know at the time, we were the only, uh, person or the only unit to have blue on blue with a, uh, with a drone strike. So, um, we actually, they called in a danger close strike and, uh, you know, uh, that, that, uh, missile took out a couple of our own guys. So, um, that was, uh, that was pretty gut wrenching, uh, experience to know that not only did we lose them, but we lost them by our own, um, by our own actions. Now, so. now, how did you find that out? I mean, usually, okay, and forgive my ignorance of, of Navy corpsmen, but, you know, you're working in a field hospital, I assume, right? And guys just come in. Um, at, at the time when they're coming in, do you know that that's what happened or you found out after the fact? 
So I was, so I was with, uh, with Marine infantry. So I was, you know, out doing patrols and stuff like that. I did a three week rotation just to do some training at the, uh, level one trauma center there at Camp Bastion, which was connected to Camp Leatherneck. And, um, uh, so I did work in the hospital there for a little bit, but most of the time we were just out on patrols. Mm-hmm. I happened to be back. Um, we happened to be back on the QRF rotation. And so we, um, I, I kind of, uh, was, or I was in the, the, uh, at the, what we call B doc. And we had, um, I was in the medical spaces at the time and I walked in and I just see a lot of commotion going on, um, with the corpsmen that were in there and master chief and, um, somebody's name had been taken off the board. And that was, uh, that was, you know, my, my buddy. And, um, and so, uh, Rast. And, uh, so we, uh, yeah, we, um, kind of just found out, I mean, the information came trickling in, right? So like at first we just knew somebody was hurt. We didn't know what happened. Uh, we didn't know who, uh, and then, and then, you know, then we found out it was one of our corpsmen and, uh, and one of the other Marines. And, um, so it was, uh, man, that was a tough day. Um, and you know, it wasn't until later that we found out what happened. And then of course there was a lot of unrest because we were just upset. The, from what we were told, you know, I mean, all of it was hearsay, so we didn't really know at the time, although there, I believe it's in record now, but basically the drone pilot had said that he was not able to discern enemy from uh, friendly. And, um, so the uh, lieutenant still called in the strike. So um, that was the that was what we found out later on. Um, but it was it was a, you know it's a tough blow. Um, and and I mean it's more than that actually. But it was just a it was a rough rough time. That was probably one of the worst moments uh, while I was there. Well, when you say more than that specifically, what do you mean? I mean it's just like there's no way to de- describe it to 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 lose one of your buddies that. Um, you know, and I only had met Rast um, when he had come because he was on active duty and volunteered to join us um, from he was he was stationed in, in San Diego at the hospital, but he wanted to deploy. And so he got attached to our unit um, pretty late, actually. And, you know, it was just uh, it was sad. I mean, he's he was a young kid and um, he uh, I mean, he deserved better, uh, you know, so. Um, it was just, it was hard to, hard to cope with that. When you find that out and, you know, obviously when you say there's unrest, I mean, were, were people complaining to the chain of command about what had happened? Were, were, were other, you know, Navy and folks and Marines asking for clarification? I mean, were you kind of just took the sure. information as it was? Yeah, no, I mean, basically there was just, you know, it was a lot of, um, you didn't know what information was legit and what wasn't right. Cause I mean, we're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so you would just take in everything that you heard, but, um, it, there was just a lot of questions being asked and not a lot of answers, a lot of answers being given. Right. So there was just a lot of, um, concern and unrest and, 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 you know, um, and unrest in the fact that like, you know, it wasn't like we were going to mutiny or anything, but there was just a lot of emotion wrapped around why, uh, we would hurt our own guys. Right. Um, so it was, it was, it was insane. Well, I, I um, guess you would think that's possible. I, I guess the underlying issue, I mean, it, how do you trust your chain of command after that? You know what I mean? Well, right. we, we, we work in this organization where, you know, there should be a unified belief in the chain of command, uh, from top right. to bottom, theoretically. Right. And, and right. We know that it's not that way in reality, but 
at the end of the day, we all sort of, whether we want to admit it or not, genuinely believe that the people above us are always looking out for our best interests, right? Like that's sort of the the general thought. I mean, obviously, again, I'm sure people who are prior military are shaking their heads going, nope, that, that, that person definitely wasn't looking out for me. Uh, and those instances happen, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that can break a unit or can, can break sort of that the, the morale of a unit uh, because now it's like every day you get up and get an order and you have to think twice about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, that's I think, you know, part of it is, I mean, the unfortunate reality and they, they talk about this all the time, you know, complacency kills like you'll see the signs all over the base right, basically saying don't get complacent. Um, and uh, but there's this part of you that, you know, after a few months of being out there and patrolling, you're not really thinking about you've kind of just, you, you know, surrendered that part. At least I feel like that's what I did is surrender that part of control, right, that, you know. Um, at any time something bad can happen and you just have to be able to respond to the moment and not worry about the everything after because there's no guarantees what sucks is to think about now you know now you have to worry about your chain of command as well as your um uh you know the enemy (laughs) um and what you're doing i mean the the last 96 hours we were in country we were ordered to to move our hasty patrol base from one place to another and we had intel that suggested there was already other ieds on this hilltop but we had to go sweep it anyways and uh you know we were joking about it at first and then it got quiet it was kind of like we went through all these stages um and of course we're doing what my uh, sergeant would call Sam Zambonying, right? Which, you know, we have the mine roller and we'd be out there like clearing an area to see if we can set up a patrol base. And, um, um, we're driving over this hilltop, which had four fingers on it coming off of the hill. Right. And we had hit an IED, uh, in that same area, uh, just a week before. And actually one of the guys that was in our vehicle, my, one of the sergeants that was in our vehicle was in vehicle one who had hit that that first ID. So we were always already like, why are we going back to this area where we know that there's, uh, we have Intel, there's possibly more bombs, but you know, you follow orders and that's what you do. And of course, lo and behold, we, you know, with less than 48 hours before we're supposed to be done with operations, we had already done turnover. We were just doing our very last, uh, patrol really. And, uh, we, we got, our vehicle just got destroyed by a 80 pound bomb. Um, and you know, all of us spent four days in the hospital. So, um, the, and you, you know, that you're doing what you're told to do, but at the same time, you're like, you're still questioning it. Right. But I mean, what do you do? You know, I mean, you gotta, you, you follow orders. That's what you do when you're over there. And so that's what we did. And, uh, it led us to where we were. Yeah, uh, I, I can relate. I had a similar instance happen eight days out before I left. We were already yeah. we were already ripping with the unit in place. Uh, you know, ripping for the civilians listening. Our replacements are in place. R.I.P. Yep. Um, and so uh, I got I got tasked with a similar mission eight days out, and and our vehicle got hit with an IED. Um, you know, it's just it's one of the you, you think you're that close to the finish line, and all you're going to do is coast all the way through, right? And then all of a sudden, yeah. something pops up, and uh, your world gets thrown upside down. So. Um, how long was that total deployment? Uh, it was just under, it was just right around eight months. So we did, uh, about sounds like a lot in eight months, man, three, three months of workup and then, well, about two and a half months of workup and then we deployed and then, you know, we did about a, a month or so of spin down, um, uh, when we got back before we, so it was all told it was right around, right around a month or a year. Um, but the uh, time on ground was around eight months. Yeah. I so. mean, like I said, it seems like a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff happened in a short amount of time. 
Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, everyone was kind of going through their things and, you know, you would only get piecemeal information from other companies because we were so far and spread out. Um, so uh, it was only every few weeks, like when we go back to Camp Leatherneck, that we'd actually get to pick up any any news of other companies and what was going on. Sometimes you'd cross paths, um, but most of the time, you know, we didn't see anyone until we got, got done with the deployment um, when we were uh, actually back in, uh, well, I guess when we when we finally did our turnover, so the last few, the last week we were in country there, we were kind of all hanging out together before we, before we all parted ways. And then <clears throat> the, I think the hardest part for me was since I was an individual augmentee or an IA, um, all, all the guys, you know, all the Marines went back to Texas and I went back to Illinois where I lived and none of the people that I served with at the time had deployed. I mean, they, they called themselves, they said they had deployed, but they went to a uh, launch stool to the hospital in Germany, you know, and and went and did all these USO trips <laughs> on the weekends. So I was like, that's not a deployment. That's a vacation. <laughs> um, so like we used to, we used to joke about that. Yeah, it's that same, um, as, same as deploying to Kuwait. Like you're in the Middle <laughs> right. East, but it's not a deployment. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you have ice in your cup, don't talk to me. Exactly. Um, so <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's a fair way to phrase it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, if you had a real cup, <laughs> let's, let's start there. Pretty good. Um, yeah. Well done. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, my sergeant used to make a big deal about that. Uh, Sergeant Tuke, he always would talk about how he missed ice in his, his soda. And I was like, you know, that's, that's true. That's real. It's legit. So, so you get back from Afghanistan, uh, you, you know, to kind of return a little bit here to the PTSD conversation after everything you had went through, did you think at that point in time, there was anything upstairs going on that you were cognizant of? Oh man. I mean, <clears throat> being a corpsman, I can't sit here and lie and say I didn't recognize some of the things, but at the same time, I was just like, it ju I just need time to calm down. Right. Um, you know, I, I got to thinking about it once, uh, this was a few years ago, but I was just thinking about the fact of, you know, <clears throat> I was at, I was working at a hospital at the time cause I'm a nurse now. And, um, I was working at the hospital and just thinking about how tired I was. And, um, and I was like, you know, what's crazy is, we're deployed. We literally, we get, they gave us one 24 hour period to just do whatever we wanted to. And outside of that, we were, we were working every day. And, um, it's like, if you, if anyone ever put you in a job interview and said, Hey, you're just going to have to work like, like 12 months straight and we'll give you like five or six days off, you know, no one would take that job. <laughs> and yet that's what we do, you know? Um, so, uh, coming home and trying to, get back into a normal routine was, was just impossible for me. Um, at the time I had, I owned an AR 15. So I, I literally had to carry that with me kind of around the house everywhere I went. Um, because I, I just couldn't, the idea of not having my rifle next to me, like would freak me out. Um, I had all sorts of sleep issues. Uh, we lived on a gravel road. So when people would drive by, I would get so freaked out from that. Yeah. That's a um, very distinctive sound when you hear a, yeah. a Humvee or whatever going over gravel like that. You know exactly what it sounds like in your ears. Yeah. And it was, you know, I, I couldn't sleep. So it'd be like three in the morning and somebody would be driving by and I'm freaking out. You know, I mean, it was it was bad. And I had a, a lot of issues. I, I put my kids through a lot. You know, I... I really struggled, um, with alcohol and continued to struggle with alcohol over the past, you know, that, over that for basically almost a decade. And then, um, kind of just got to a point where I just finally crashed, um, a couple years ago and just couldn't, couldn't 
keep coping anymore. I was just tired of, you know, I was exhausted of trying to, I just got burned out of trying to like force myself through stuff. Um, and I had gone to, you know, I'd gone to college. I got my bachelor's degree. I almost failed out one semester and I was able to recover and keep going, but, um, I was battling with suicidal thoughts a lot and I still do honestly. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of that that happens. And I think it's important that we talk about it because, if we don't get it out there, if we don't make it a comfortable conversation and it's not an easy conversation to have, but we've got to be able to like get out there and, and get in front of it, or we're going to continue to have, um, men and women, you know, dying when they get back. I mean, that's another thing we've, we've lost guys from our uh, battalion after we got home. So it's, it's the worst feeling in the world to know that you you actually made it through the war and then yeah. to know that you, you still are losing guys. And, um, it's, it's, it's just gut wrenching. And so, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was just tough to, to get back into a routine. Um, and so that, that haunted me for a number of years and really just finally got to a point where I kicked my ass and, and, and put me in the ground. Uh, and you know, <clears throat> you know, you brought up something interesting and, you know, I, I speak to my own personal experience of this and other uh, hazard ground guests have, have brought this up. You talk about the effect it had on your kids and, um, well, I, I'm not a doctor, a psychiatrist, psychologist, none of the above, but you know, there, there needs to be some sort of study and effect on, uh, you know, people, military folks in particular who have PTSD and how that affects children. I know you can't pass it on to your kids, but the mm-hmm. behavior you exhibit in front of them, especially when they are young, uh, mm-hmm. can have a permanent effect on them. Uh, and, and it's, it's one of the things that I am most conscious of with my own children, um, you know, the, the times when I snap or the times where I have a, a bad reaction, um, you know, because that reaction sometimes is so ingrained. And, and I, listen, I don't want to get into a discussion on parenting here because that's not what this show is about. But, <laughs> you know, we, we can have that conversation I, about how parents, you know, react to their children. But I know some yeah. of those snaps are sort of subconsciously predetermined, right? Like it, it just because when your your intensity level gets amped up or your yeah. Heightened sensibilities get amped up. You know, there's a there's a there's a reaction and, and uh, almost an uncontrollable reaction unless you really you know uh, focus on it and diagnose it to that aspect. But my point is, is how your kids see that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and as military members who are dealing with PTSD, you know, we're, yes, the focus is on us to make sure that we get better. But there's a second and third order of effect of that, not only to our spouses but to our children and the way they see us act. Um, if it has an effect on them and almost predetermines them to act that way when they get older. And I think there's, there, God, there's got to be some studies done somewhere about that, but I feel like that's not talked about enough. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, it's, that was part of where, you know, part of the guilt that I had, right. When I, when I finally got to this crash point of recognizing things, um, you know, within, within my kids seeing, you know, as you see them grow, I mean, they're, you know, 15 and 17 now. So, but at the time they were, you know, five and seven. And so, you know, it was, they were very young and, you know, to see their dad, you know, I never hurt them directly, but, you know, I would pick shit up and throw it and break it and, you know, punch holes in walls and, you know, do all sorts of just insane things. Right. Um, and it was, it, you know, it, it's just terrible to go through that and then and then to recognize later on that you were that person. And right. um, and so there was a lot of guilt and shame and, and self-hate, you know, and just there still is. Right. But those are things to work through. And, and I still am. I mean, I go to programs with the VA. Um, I'm in one right now, um, you know, just to make sure I'm like, you know, 
staying, staying clear, you know, and, and making sure I'm trying to treat myself and do the right things. Um, and, you know, I think, again, I just think it's important that we, we somehow normalize that because there's a lot of us that have these issues, even, even if they're minor, but, you know, I mean, there's a lot of us that have those problems with, with PTSD and we just don't know how to, how to cope with it, how to battle it. And, and we feel like we can handle it on our own, you know? And I think that's where I was at. You mentioned that crash point. What was that for you? Um, <clears throat> you know, it just, it was just stress. I mean, the anxiety, the, um, you know, uh, there was a, there was a lot of personal issues that were going on in my life at the time, uh, with my spouse. And then, you know, like I had actually gotten to a point where I was pretty functional, but I was just like holding on to just all of this, right. All this anxiety and guilt, shame, um, and, and just everything. So it just got to a point where it was just too much to handle anymore. And so I, you know, I almost took my own life. I ended up in the hospital and, um, you know, and then I spent three months at the VA in a, in a PTSD program, um, where, uh, I really had to do a, you know, a gut check and you really look at yourself in the mirror at that point and see where you're at and realize, you know, what, are, you know, are you, you got to make a decision here, you know, what are you going to do? And, um, and, and it's a hard, it's, it's not an easy decision to make. Unfortunately, it's, you know, it can be a battle to, to, to come to that point. And a lot of the guys that were there, you know, dealt with that. Um, but it was, it was good to be in a, in a, an environment where other people were going through it as well, though. You're able to, to recognize, you know, that you're not alone, that there's other people out there. Um, really the sense of community and camaraderie that I kind of had felt like I had lost. It was also, it was also a weird time with my Navy command because a lot of the guys that I knew were either getting out that I had served with in the Navy for a while. So it was, it was starting to feel kind of lonely at the, at the command. And, um, so there was just a, you know, it was just a lot of things happening that kind of just finalized that point to where I was at. Mm -hmm. And, um, did anybody so, in the Navy that, you know, that you were there with recognize anything, say anything to you? Was anybody able to point something out to you at any point in time? No, I mean, I would say when I was at drill for the most part, like no one, no one would know. The only time anyone ever knew was when I would fill out, we do our, you know, our, our yearly PHAs where we do our physical health assessments. And, you know, I'd be honest on that and, and say I'm having issues and they'd be like, okay, well, you need to do something. But then I would get red flagged, but then, you know, the NAS medical department never really ever followed up. And I just, you know, I wasn't going to go get help on my own. So I just, you know, it was just like, whatever. Um, and See, that's, uh, I have to pause you for a second. Cause that's extremely disconcerting from the standpoint of I'm one of those people who lies on my PHA. Yep. Everything's great because I don't want to yeah. deal with it. And, and the fact that you actually, stepped up and said something and it got ignored or it got glossed over is extremely yeah. troubling because you're, so, you are in the minority of people who actually tells the truth on those things because we're all generally just told, just fill the thing out as quick as you can move along. And we've done with this PHA because right. no one wants to sit in those lines anymore. Right. Like, but you're the one yeah. person who actually speaks up and then that, wow, that's just, that's mind blowing to me at this point. So the first few years I didn't, but then by the time, I don't know, I would say like seven year, eight years in, I kind of had this, I don't give a fuck attitude and i apologize i don't know if i'm allowed to say that on here or not you can but, say whatever you want <laughs> i you know i just had this uh it was just it, i just was like you know what screw it i'm gonna put exactly how i feel on this and and it was kind of confirmation unfortunately of what i felt like the nosk was like um i won't say which nosk i was at but um it was it's a cluster and actually uh, the last year and a half I was in the military, I was questioning if it was even worth it, if the 13 years was worth it, if everything I put my kids through was worth it, because 
Um, they didn't believe me while I was in the hospital at the VA. So I was in that three month program while I was in the hospital, they were trying to command at the NOSC, not my command, but the, the, the medical department at the NOSC was trying to make me come back to do uh, my PFA and weigh in. Um, they wouldn't give me any, uh, waiver and, um, they threatened to, to fail me. Um, they threatened to give me UAs for not showing up. And, and I was like, I'm in the hospital in an inpatient program for mental health right now. Like what is your problem? You know, like what, where's the disconnect here? But it was the chief of that department for whatever reason decided he didn't like me and thought I was, I guess, making it up. I don't know. And, um, you know, he just decided he was going to do everything to make my life miserable. I'm still waiting. Honestly, I'm still waiting on pay from April to December. Um, right now they really? still have not paid me. Yeah. So it's been a, it's been a, the last year and a half of my, uh, enlistment was pretty miserable. Um, and so it really, it was like killing me. Um, and that was where, you know, like continue to serve when I started that and I started meeting up with all these other veterans, that was, it was the saving grace, honestly, because I was starting to kind of get back in this zone. Um, it was really hard to, to heal mentally when your own Navy, command is is treating you like you're a problem and not um not uh, you know someone that needs help and so you know we're every, every month it's something different there's always a different excuse and um and so it's just uh it's been really uh, a, a terrible and it doesn't surprise me at all that they never followed up with my mental health because they don't really do much of anything uh in my opinion there but uh but anyways yeah Wow. Um, I don't want to gloss over, uh, you know, the last decade of your of your Navy career post deployment. But um, I mean, anything worthwhile, noteworthy that stands out that we, we need to know as far as your story is concerned? Uh, you know, the irony is, is I think the coolest thing I ever did in the Navy was actually uh, I was <laughs> a funny story. My master chief was having an issue with a spreadsheet. This is literally the first day I'm at Camp Lejeune. And, uh, so I was like, Oh, master chief, if you just do X, Y, Z here, it'll, it'll make that easier for you. And so that was where I learned, you don't show master chiefs how to do stuff because then he, he stood up immediately <laughs> and told me to sit down. And so immediately I got put with H and S company, which really pissed me off because I wanted to be with the line. And, um, that was why I deployed. I didn't deploy to be an admin, you know? And, um, <clears throat> and so, uh, so yeah, so, but the coolest thing that I ended up doing, our, our, our chief ended up getting, uh, in trouble. Uh, and he ended up getting basically fired. Um, and so as an E4, I had already passed and, but I hadn't been promoted yet, um, for my E5, but I was an E4 at the time taking over an E7 billet as LPO of the, uh, as of the medical department. And we had, we were about 60%, 66% medically ready. And so I created this spreadsheet database of, you know, eight, 900 Marines. And we got everyone and we got, you know, roughly up to around 98, 99% medically ready before the end of the deployment. And I had HM1s reporting to me on their numbers and all this stuff. And it was just, uh, it was definitely the coolest thing I feel proud about in the Navy because I actually could measure my, you know, my success. I could see what we did and what we accomplished. And it was, it was really cool, but it was one of those things where it was just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and everyone kind of moves on. So no one really notices it, but I remember. So anyways. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so your decision, as you mentioned earlier, wasn't yours to get out of the Navy. You get medically boarded. Uh, how does that process start and come about for you? Uh, ultimately after the, the suicidal attempt, it was pretty, pretty obvious. I was, 
I was not fit anymore. Um, I knew I wasn't deployable at that point. Um, I always thought I was. I I had actually volunteered for probably at least three more deployments, and I just didn't get picked up for them. Um, and I can't imagine. I don't know. I don't know what I would have been like if I would have gone, and what it's certainly what I would have been like when I got back. So I'm glad I actually never got any of those. Um, but I kept. I just wanted to go back so bad. Um, that was one of the first feelings I had, um, which was really weird. Um, but I couldn't seem to break that for a number of years of just trying to, I was constantly hunting for another deployment to go back. And, um, so, you know, but when it got to the point of being hospitalized and all that, I just, I realized, you know what, it's just, it's unfortunately it's time to hang up the boots, which killed me because I had finished my bachelor's degree. I wanted to put in for a commission for nursing. Um, and um, I was in a program, a boarded program in the reserves, which was called HM to BSN. And, and basically while I was in school, my school time counted as my drill time. All I had to do was, um, show up for annual trainings. And then, you know, I had to do my PFAs and then I had to keep up on all my, um, other trainings. I had to keep certified on everything else, but, um, I didn't have to go to drill. Um, and so that was kind of what I did. And my hope was to, to get, um, uh, a commission after I finished nursing school and, but by that point I was already just so burnt out and, and so anxious and dealing with all these health, mental health issues that I hadn't been dealing with that I just could, I was angry, um, that I had to compete against civilian nurses. And so I, I just said, screw it. I don't want to do a commission. If you're going to make me compete, I was really mad at the recruiter. Um, cause I was like, I've, I've got a decade in, you know, I've been deployed of, of all these things. Like what, what else could I possibly do to be more a better candidate than somebody you would bring in and have to teach him the Navy way. Um, but that was just kind of how my mentality at the time. And so I said, screw it. And, um, ended up just pretty much hanging up the boots. I mean, I just never went back to drill after I had that crash. Um, it's pretty much what happened. I, um, spent a lot of time, you know, getting, getting help. And, uh, and so that, uh, that kind of just took away from everything. And when I was going through the board, you know, the, the people at Bethesda doing the med board, which they're squared away. I mean, everything that was wrong that we had trouble with was at the NOSC level. But man, and at Walter Reed, they that process went amazingly well. Even with COVID going on, they were still very um, efficient and effective at like processing the paperwork and all that stuff. Um, it was that was actually a pretty good process. I don't want to make it sound like everything was all horrible because um, they really did a great job. But um, it was pretty much decided pretty quickly by the command that I wasn't fit for duty and I wasn't going to fight it. You know, it just um, it was the decision they made. And I kind of just decided I would leave it up to them to decide. And if they said I wasn't, then, you know, that it is what it is. And uh, even if they said I was fit, I, I don't know that I would have gone back. My enlistment actually ended in November. So I got extended just uh, for six months just to get through the rest of the med board. So, gotcha. um, yeah. Do you think that had you been able to recognize some of what you were going through earlier or had you gotten the help when you put on a PHA that you were struggling with something, do you think the end of your career turns out differently? Do you think you're still in at this point? Uh, I would say probably. You know, I think if I had gotten help and, and gotten treatment and all those things, yeah, I think certainly there was a chance that that would have changed the trajectory because it was just on a bad path at that point. Um, but, you know... It, Everything in life has been interesting. I have I have a lot of conflict within me now about 
you know, Afghanistan and what we did there and what we didn't do there. Um, you know, uh, just, just everything in general of kind of how long we've been there and, and what we're, what are we actually accomplishing? And, you know, just, it, we felt like when we got to the end of our deployment, it's like, what do we do? You know, we're sitting there watching our vehicle be loaded up on this tow truck. And, um, and it's just like, you know, what is this for, you know? And, and so, um, yeah, it was just, it was, uh, uh, man, I mean, it was just a lot of emotion about that. And so we just, <clears throat> I kind of lost my train of thought. I gotta be honest with you. I went off on a tangent. <laughs> um, no, I mean, listen, it's uh, some of this stuff. It, it's not always, we don't always like to pull up, you know, the bandaid of old wounds, but sometimes these conversations yeah. just naturally lead to that. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, I think it was just, uh, there's a lot of conflict about my, you know, my service and like, what, what did I do? What did I accomplish? Oh, but this is what I was going to say is that had I not served, had I not gone through all that, I probably never would have started continue to serve. I probably, well, I certainly wouldn't have ever moved to DC because the whole reason I moved here was to, I had a job offer through the national institutes of health and a veterans program they had there. Um, so that was why I even moved here to begin with. Um, and so there was just all these, uh, all these decisions have led me to where I am. And so, you know, while the, I'm not proud of, you know, what I put my kids through, for instance, but at the same time, I know that anything we've ever gone through, anything we experience, we, we either turn it around and use it uh, to do something positive with it, or we let it consume us. And so for me, you know, with continue to serve, for instance, we, we have these, what we call family meetings and we do them every couple of weeks and everyone, you know, we just do like a big video chat and we'll have either speakers or topics that we talk about. And then by the end of it, it's just kind of like, Hey, if anyone wants to stay on and keep talking, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. And so we'll, we'll have these conversations and people kind of release some of this stuff they've been holding on to. And it's, 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 it's therapeutic in a way. And I don't even think we recognize it that way. It's just, but it is, you know, and we've just got to, we've got to be willing to talk about things and get it out there. So as your career comes to a close, you mentioned uh, starting up, continue to serve. How is it born? When does the idea come about? Give us the background. So June 1st happens. Um, we had about 1600 troops on ground. Of what year? Of, uh, this was, uh, yeah, this is 2020. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. And, um, June, yeah, June 1st, 2020, it comes around and we've got all these troops. Everyone's seen the iconic photo of all the troops standing at the Lincoln Memorial. Um, yep. You know, there's people, there's troops, there's, I mean, I can't even tell you how many law enforcement agencies there um, all from all the all around the DMV. And um, I'm sitting there at home watching CNN waiting for Trump to speak because he was supposed to give uh, a speech about, you know, all the, the rioting and, and protesting that have been going on, you know. And, um, or what he, you know, mostly said writing, I shouldn't even say that I shouldn't even give credence to that, but, um, he basically, uh, you know, gives his speech and then they clear the square. And so he could have his photo op with the, with the Bible. Um, and it just, it, it was like gut wrenching to watch. I'm watching reporters getting hit with batons. I'm watching people get shot with rubber bullets at point blank range and watching people getting gassed. And I knew I had buddies down there. No, you say watching, you mean watching on TV or you there? Yeah, I was watching on TV. I was watching on TV and, um, I knew I had some friends down there. I was super nervous about them. And, uh, but you know, at that time I just, I had never protested. I had never organized. I wasn't really into that kind of thing. And I was just like, you know what? Like, 
um, June 2nd that morning. Um, I'm super just worked up and angry about it um, at, at the prospect of people's First Amendment rights being crushed, at the prospect of um, Black Lives Matter being treated in a way that it was, uh, it was you know, it's all riots and looters. There's no, uh, and Antifa and all these things, but never talking about the actual issues that's, that's, that causes the, the Black Lives Movement to matter to, or movement to matter. And um, so June 2nd, I'm sitting there like just really worked up. And it just so happened a buddy of mine that I deployed with to Afghanistan had just moved to DC. And uh, he was like, dude, we got to, we got to do something. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to do. What do you, what do you want to do? And he's like, let's just go to BLM Plaza and, and make a couple signs. And I was like, all right, cool. And so we did. And I got in a big argument with my wife at the time because she was like, we've been sequestering ourselves all this time. And now you're going to go out in a big public spectacle. <laughs> um, and I was like, I can't sit back anymore. I just can't, I can't be a keyboard warrior and try to pe- convince people on, so- on social media. Like I've, I've got to do something. And um, so we made some signs. I made a post on the Washington DC subreddit. I was super nervous about it. Um, and, uh, um, we, but we, but we went anyways, I made the post anyways. I was afraid like the veteran commu- community would really kind of lash out at me, honestly. And what happened in return was just amazing. I mean, we ended up having about four or five people show up, complete strangers. We'd never met each other before. Uh, but veterans who just felt this calling to be out there. And before you know it, we had every week we were out there after that. I mean, it just didn't stop. We, we kept going every week. We had something going on or we'd go to another protest or we'd, um, try to, if we didn't have an, if we didn't know anyone, we would just show up and, and try to find something going on. And, uh, we did that for, for months and, and eventually we really got, um, developed good relationships with a lot of the grassroots organizations here and, um, uh, and just started, marching with them, uh, trying to provide what we call security, which is really like de-escalation and uh, try to be liaisons between the officers and the, and the organizers. Um, we provided medical street medics, you know, um, we would provide logistics, supplies, uh, whatever we could get, you know, whatever we could get people to donate, we would have stuff for mutual aid. Um, and we just, I don't know, we just wanted to do something and not sit back anymore. And it was that camaraderie and that that dedication to service um, that really reminded me of of why I wanted to be in the Navy and why I loved being in the Navy. Um, and so the past seven months has been um, amazing because it's it's been a reminder of of why uh, people serve and and there's been that camaraderie that I'd been missing for so long. So um, it really kind of developed into something, uh, better than I could have ever imagined. And now we're busier than I ever thought we would be. So it's, it's going pretty well. So, you know, it sort of starts very organically. Um, but you know, did you know that you had something there that you could call continue to serve? Like, I mean, was this an idea that all of you put together kind of just, I'm, I'm trying to understand a little bit more about sort of uh, where it actually, you know, pops in your mind, like we have something here that, that we can continue and people are going to, uh, you know, they're going to be part of. Right. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was not that well thought out (laughs) Um, (laughs) at all. Um, you know, I, again, having never organized, having never protested before, um, which by the way, feels super weird the first time you go. And I want to point that out because I think a lot of people will, are afraid or not afraid, but just like uncomfortable with it. Um, and, and it's, 
it's just one of those things you just have to kind of experience. But um, basically what happened was uh, the, the Reddit post I had made was blowing up so much and I was getting so many mm-hmm. upvotes and all this. I got nervous for some reason. I got nervous that someone from my Navy command would see it. And so I was like, I need to change the username um, or they might connect me to, which was silly. Cause I mean, I mean, I don't know. I just thought that it might be something concerning and I was still in the military at the time, still going through all the, the med board stuff. And I was afraid of how they would react to that. And um, so I changed it. And I, when I was trying to figure out, it was literally on the whim. I was like, well, I need to change this to something. What can I change this? And I was like, I need it to mean something, but it was, it was literally just on the spur of the dime, really just continue to serve. That just seemed to be something that was relevant. So I did a couple searches online to see if there's any other organizations called that and there wasn't or nothing that I could find easily. And so I was like, screw it. I'm just going with that. And and that was it. And that, that started about a couple weeks after, um, I, I, uh, I, the, about, you know, after into June basically. And then, um, that was how we got started. Everything that happened, all the events that we organized, everything happened through our, our subreddit and we just communicated through Reddit initially. And that was how we had everyone uh, showing up for events. And, um, and so then from there, it just kind of grew and grew and grew. Um, yeah, did not plan any of this though. It was, it was super organic. So after everything ends, uh, over the summer, yeah, and you have continued to serve in, in your hands. What's sort of next? Do you know what's next? Are you looking for something to do or you just sort of have to wait for, for a lack of a better way to phrase it, the next cause to pop up that you can get behind? So, I mean, essentially until January, um, we were still out there. The, 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 there were BLM groups that were still um, having marches, still protesting, even in the even in the cold weather. Um, and so we've we've been we were still pretty busy with with the marches. We also started um, uh, during uh, election season. We worked with another organization that was called Election Defenders, and essentially we just had people go to the polls and hang out and ensure that it was nonpartisan. The whole idea was just to make sure no one was getting heckled or harassed or anything like that while they're at the polls. And we handed out refreshments, snacks, stuff like that, and just tried to make it as positive of an event as it should be, because voting should be, you know, a, a happy time to to be able to take part in your civic duty to vote. And and so regardless of who you want to vote for. And so we just uh, we did that. Um, we had people in uh, Maryland, D.C. and in Georgia to do that. Um, and then. You know, and then we did the cleanups and that was kind of a spur of the moment thing, too. We've just kind of reacted to what we felt needed to be done. Um, And after um, after January 6th, there was just a lot of um, racist stickers all over uh, the street signs and and trash cans and just everywhere uh, up and down Pennsylvania and around the D.C. area. And so, you know, we've been trying to go through and, and pick up trash and clean up those areas. Um, and that, you know, that kind of is what initially gave us a lot of national press and gave us the ability to kind of, uh, expand. So we're in a very, we're, we're still in startup mode, but we're also in expansion mode. So it's, it's a little bit chaotic. Well, let's, let's talk about January 6th for a minute. And again, we we don't, we try to stay away from politics. I mean, look, obviously being in the military, there's, there's always political ties to it, right? Like you're not going to escape that. So. Um, and, and by all means, you're free to express whatever opinion you feel, uh, by no right. means are we, are we uh, you know, again, your story. So, uh, you can say what, what you like and, and you know, guess what audience, sorry, you got to deal with it. <laughs> so, um, but I, I guess where I was going with this was that, you know, January 6th happens, 
Um, and, you know, you have this organization continue to serve where you're trying to support and promote veterans, you know, being part of the process of America, so to speak, right? Equality and, and democracy yes. and all those things. What are you thinking and feeling as all this is going on? Well, you know, first of all, to, to, to kind of address what you're just saying, with continue to serve, we don't look at this as a progressive liberal issue. Right. Um, we look at this as, as civil rights equals, uh, you know, human rights. And um, we, we don't want to be in the, in, in involved in the political spectrum of it either. Uh, what we do know is there is, there is a difference between um, – there is a difference in policing. And we saw that on January 6th. Um, I felt two very distinct feelings while watching uh, what happened. Um, I wasn't there initially. I got there a little bit later in the afternoon, so I didn't see them initially storming, but we did have some people down there. Um, and we, I mean, you know, I initially, I mean, obviously there's distraught and concern about holy, holy shit. Like our, our, democracy is under attack right now and it's by under attack by our own by our own citizens which is insane um so there is this massive weight of concern of how is this going to end right but before they even got to the steps of the capitol building i was watching how they were treating the police they were pushing them they were hitting them they were yelling and screaming at them they were doing all these antagonizing things and after seven months of being involved in Black Lives Matter protests, there's the the level and the difference of policing was just unbearable, and it, it it just infuriated me to no end because they literally did not do anything until it was already too late, until the the they had already breached right, um, and had those been. Uh, to just say it blatantly, like blatantly, if had those been black people that were trying to storm the Capitol, there would have been flashbangs, there would have been rubber bullets, there would have been gas, there would have been batons, there would have been probably real ammunition used uh, if they would have actually got to the Capitol building. Um, you know, it would have been policed so much differently. So yeah, January 6th was, in my opinion, it was the shining example of the difference between policing of white people and black people in this country. And it was a shining example of white privilege that we simply, uh, you know, a lot of people just implicitly um, are un biased and they don't see it. They don't recognize it because it doesn't affect them. But I don't know how else to describe it other than that's what we saw. Yeah. And again, uh, you know, I don't think there's there's a lot of politics in that statement. Um, I, I think that objectively, uh, it's fair to it's fair to say it that way. You know, uh, I personally don't disagree with anything you said, uh, but, you know, and I think reasonable minds can choose to disagree. And uh, as a previous uh, guest on the podcast, Mike Jason would say, as long as we operate in good faith in these discussions, uh, it's fair to have disagreements about what goes on. So I totally agree that that said uh, the aftermath of it, did, did you feel like, you know, that what was left of DC on January 7th or what it looked like, you know, it, was that a, for lack of a better term, a target of opportunity for, for continue to serve? Like we can go and have a positive effect after it and, and, and make sure that our nation's capital sort of starts the recovery process, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, initially it was just, we, we had stayed out past curfew. 
Um, we were on January 6th, we were still out just kind of keeping an eye on things because we knew they're going to go back to the Capitol building and vote. And we wanted to see if there was going to be a resurgence of people. Right. Um, and so we were hanging out and while we were hanging out, we're kind of walking around the streets and going up and down Penn Ave and, um, and we saw, you know, just saw these stickers. So my buddy that I was with had a, a, a scraper with him. And so he was like removing some of them. And I said, you know what, man? We're already out past curfew. It's nighttime. Let's not do this because if we do, we're going to get, they're going to think we're doing something to the signs instead of trying to take these stickers down. And he was like, well, I really want to take these down. And I said, I promise you, we will have an event. We'll get together. We'll, we'll get, you know, 15 or 20 people together and we'll come through here and we'll clean all this up. And he's like, all right, all right, good call. And so we had been handing out like hand warmers to the homeless and, you know, um, and doing some other things while we were kind of waiting around and, uh, and then, you know, everything stayed calm um, that night, fortunately. Um, and so then, you know, that, I think the, it was Friday, um, comes around and we're just like, um, I was like, I had promised, um, someone that we would do this. So we've got to do it. And so we just like slapped something together. It just so happened. My, my ops manager, Jen, or ops director, Jen had, uh, um, made like hit up another Instagram account that is here in DC that has like 70 some thousand followers. And so they shared it to their story. And then from there, the traction started to build. And then it got onto another one um, where there was over a million followers on that one. And so it just like grew and grew and grew. And the next thing I know, you know, Washington Post and CNN and all these other people are wanting to talk to us. Um, and it was just crazy because we were just trying to do something that we thought needed to be done. That's, that's it. I mean, we're just trying to, again, we're, we're a dynamic group. Everyone tells me I'm not niche enough, but I just feel like our group is niche in the fact of who we are and what our mission is. I don't feel like we need to be locking ourselves into any one thing, you know, and we, we just need to be whatever, um, whatever our country needs. That's what veterans are. We swore an oath to the constitution and that's what we are trying to uphold with continue to serve. Yeah. And, and so, and, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no. So I was just going to say, like, you know, it's just um, uh, we just thought we just we would go out and clean and try to do something positive in the, in the face of something really negative. You mentioned, uh, you know, what veterans uh, are called to do and the oath to the Constitution that we all swore. Uh, and, you know, this brings us to an interesting discussion uh, that we're, we're unfortunately having to have more and more of. Uh, and I think it's creating more of a civil military divide. Just when you thought it was starting to close a little bit uh, in the post-9-11 world, it, it, it's actually getting wider because there were plenty of veterans who took part in that assault on the Capitol. Um, and, right. you know, does your oath to the Constitution stop the minute you get your DD-214? Uh, and, and there's a complicated question there because, on one hand, it does. You are just a regular civilian now. Right. Mm -hmm. who, who didn't swear an oath. Civilians don't swear an oath to the Constitution. They don't have to, after birth, you know, right after uh, baptism. <laughs> it, it's not like right. they raise their right hand. It's, you know, they're, they're just American yep. citizens and they're afforded right. all the freedoms and, and ability to do what they want like everybody else is. And, and you take that uniform off and uh, you're no longer part of the service. You're not held to the standards of the service. That said, ideally, I'd like to believe that all of us who swore that oath take it with us to the grave. Now, here's where it gets complicated. Your previous service, and even somebody like me whose current service, doesn't give you impunity to do things because you wear or wore a uniform. Uh, 
right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Whether people, whether veterans who assaulted the Capitol that day believe that they were doing it in the truest sense of democracy and trying to, quote, save democracy, uh, that's a different discussion. But, you know, objectively, um, destroying a building and, and trying to, you know, threaten people it, it, is nowhere in our oath of office. <laughs> it's, it, that, right. That's not what we swore to the Constitution. So that part of it, I don't think, is up for debate. Um, the idea that you wanted to save the country from... An, an election or a way of life or whatever, I think that's completely separate. So, you know, when, when we see veterans in, in that doing those acts and you guys have an organization here where you feel like our whole purpose is to carry that oath of enlistment beyond military service. Now you're sitting in a spot where you're almost, it, it, it feels like almost cannibalism to a certain extent. To the uh, to for us or for them or or for well for in, a, in a sense where you know you now have to go police up your own and tell them to get their yeah. head out of their ass um, <laughs> you know to, right. to to stop doing something that theoretically they should know they shouldn't be doing to begin with if that makes sense you know I I will give uh, there's no doubt in my mind every I agree with everything you just said and and like the, the what they did is insane I can't imagine. Um, I just I have a hard I, time I, believing I, that that veterans who again took an oath to the Constitution and thought like I'm going to go break shit uh, I'm yeah. going to go threaten people I'm going to go scare people yeah. within an inch of their life and go yeah I'm defending America like right. that, yeah, th- no. those two things are counter to each other but here's here's the problem and in, in my opinion is not only was it media not you know not only was it crazy alt right media but it was you had 140 and I know we don't want to talk about politics but like you had leadership in this country let me just put it this way you had leadership in this country who was also saying that it was fraudulent. Right. And, and so, and I'm in no way am I trying to excuse anything they did, but what I, you know, maybe in their mind, that was how they justified it. Um, but you can't trample on the constitution while trying to protect it. And that's my biggest thing. And, and by storming the building, by wanting to people, the wanting to threaten, you know, senators lives or representatives lives, um, that's not how democracy works. And, and so, if we want to protect democracy, then we need to protect how it functions, not attack the very system itself. Um, and so if we feel that there's issues within that system, then there are ways to to tackle that. And, you know, I mean, I feel like um, I mean, look, I you me, no one could possibly I mean, if they were able to somehow make the election fraudulent or whatever, um, you know, they went through every avenue possible to legal legal action to try and resolve it. Um, every legal action was pretty much turned down. So, you know, there's a process to, to, to go through. And so I don't, I don't know how they could justify doing what they do, what they did. I don't know how they can sit there and, and have uh, you know, blue line flags on their vehicle, but then at the same time attack police officers, kill police officers. Um, you know, it, I literally the night on of January sixth while I was there when they were pushing them when they were finally pushing them away from the Capitol building I was standing right next I was down there, and they started you know chanting burn your blue line flags burn your blue line flags, and um, you know it was just and you know all these people were saying I don't get it we're here for you man you know we're we're here and they were talking to police officers, um, as if the police officers were somehow now the enemy for them you know and um, it, the whole thing was just surreal. And insane, and I don't, I don't have any justification for any of it. Um, but you know, with regards to what we do and and how we feel, it's important to remember our oath. I just don't feel like 
when you, when you take an oath, you know, it's, it's in my opinion, it's until you take your last breath, right? If I promise to do something, I'm going to promise to do it. Um, you know, I, it's interesting you asked that question though, because I've definitely had people on my Facebook tell me, uh, look, my, my oath ended with my DD 214, right? Um, so there are some people that just think that, and that's okay. I'm not just, I'm not saying one way is right or not. Um, I just know that for me, I feel like I still have work to do, uh, as a, as, as a civilian, um, for my country. And, and that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And again, to, to put a bow on, on this sort of, uh, portion of the conversation and, I would just say, and, and this is just one guy's opinion, um, I want the civil-military divide to close. I want civilians to better understand what we do. I, I really would like the hero worship of people in uniform to stop. Uh, yes. I think that's a huge problem. I think that there is a massive amount of uh, public guilt for people who don't serve, uh, which needs to go away. Yeah. You're not lesser of an American because you didn't choose to serve. And the idea that we, as we as military folks and veterans, deserve preferential treatment uh, over other Americans, I, I think is flawed. Don't get me wrong. I love my free Applebee's on November 11th. I, I'm not <laughs> going to say no to it. I like my 10% discount at certain stores. I'm totally yeah. okay. Like, <laughs> I know it's too fishy right. to say it, but hey, I'm not arguing <laughs> against it. But what I right. am saying is, is that there is, there is a certain amount of deity status that we get put upon because it's look at what we do and oh my god we fight wars and everything else yeah well guess what firemen fight fires every day and no one is offering them 10 percent for anything like i mean yeah. you know there are a lot of dangerous professions in america and, and fine we chose one that involves us fighting and winning the nation's wars and defending democracy till the bitter end great that's not for everybody i don't want it to be for everybody Right? right, just like brain surgery isn't for me. Heart surgery right. isn't for great. I'm glad there are people who do it. I'm never going to be one of those folks, and I'm totally okay with that. I could never yeah. be a teacher. Thank God for all of them. Thank God for the <laughs> ones who teach my children. Not for me. But that's what what part of what our country is, and what makes us great is that there there shouldn't be a difference between the teacher and the the captain in the army or the corpsman in the navy or you know the, the firefighter or the miner or whatever it may be. You know, and, yep. and so we have to remove that that civil military divide that 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 sort of uh, it's not rift isn't the right word because there's not angst about it, but we just have to be able to get them to understand us better. And yes, there is no impunity to act like an asshole just because you wore a uniform at some point in time. Exactly, it doesn't yeah. give you the right to do certain things because hey, I fought for this country. Big freaking deal. No one put a gun to your head and told you to do it. You did it of your own volition. It doesn't give you the right to, to, to get preferential treatment to do anything. And I think that is a huge problem that we're continuing to fight. And, and honestly, it has to start from within. We have to be the ones to preach that. We can't let civilians try to close that divide for us. We have to come to them. They can't meet us on middle ground because they never will. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the, another thing I'm tired of is the ownership of the American flag. That, that flag and those stars represent every single citizen that is in this country. Um, and there, it's like you said, there are amazing people that will never serve in the military that will do so much and never be recognized for it in this country. Uh, from, from the small business owner who just, you know, runs a, a business, but gives people jobs from, you know, the, the, like you said, teachers, I mean, just anything, right. The, you know, the, the guy who the, comes and collects the garbage, I mean, man, like that, you know, thank you for doing that. Right. Like though it represents all of us. And so for me, um, you know, you know, there's just this, 
desire for some reason there's this reason you know like when and i'm just to bring it up with kaepernick you know where people were like my brother died for this country so da, 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 da. and it's like okay great but like that doesn't take away from the flag right because the flag represents all of us um and so if somebody wants to protest they have the right to protest um and and so i i am tired of this hero epidemic uh that all veterans are all all service members are heroes um, don't get me wrong. We definitely have some heroes, but if we're all heroes, that takes away from those that really did serve and really did sacrifice. Right. Um, I can't remember uh, the name is I'm drawing a blank now, but all, the, but basically all the heroes didn't come home. Right. That was, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was a Corman who said that, but I can't remember. Um, but basically we can't continue this idea that we are, um, just like you said, we just can't keep going on this way because I think that gives people entitlement to do what they did, right? They, they felt justified in storming the building because I, because I am military, you know? Um, yeah. And, I think, I think that absolutely was part of it. I, I don't think that's deniable. And I think if you ask the people, you know, and had an open conversation with some of those veterans who were there on that day, uh, you, you know, part of their response would be, I fought for this country. Those yep. words would be in their, their reasoning somewhere. And again, that's the the attitude that we can't project on anyone or anything. We all chose this life. We all chose this freely of our own volition. It's part of that oath we talked about. I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. I mean, those are part of the same oath that you're screaming about. So, I mean, no one told you that you had to do this. You did it of your own volition. It doesn't excuse you um, from doing bad things. And, And... when military folks, veterans or current ones, do bad things, they should be held accountable to that end, to the fullest extent of not only military law, but civilian law as well, uh, because we have to remind everybody that we are fallible still. Even though we took an oath, we are still fallible, and people do bad things, and, and we have to hold them accountable, because if we don't, nobody else will. Exactly. Yeah. Well, look, yeah. uh, I mean, I, I think it's an important discussion. We can go on and on and on about it, but uh, <laughs> I, I think continue to serve... Um, you talk about good faith and the way you operate. And as you said, it, uh, what some people listening may perceive as political. And as you said, I, I don't get the vibe that it's a, a liberal progressive, you know, organization that wants to push an agenda. Uh, I think that the, the good faith operation of continue to serve in that organization is, is what is important that at the end of the day, you, you as veterans, you're extending that oath beyond your DD two fourteen. Uh, and beyond the service in the uniform to add to the uniform. And I think that's noble and it's certainly warranted and something, an example that a lot of others can follow. I appreciate that. Um, so very much. Uh, I, all I can say is we've, after, after our first cleanup when we started to get all this press, I mean, we have almost a thousand people that have volunteered to be a part of our organization and we're trying to desperately work through all of that and, and organize and set our, or set ourselves up night and, you know, in a, and almost a nationwide format here really quickly. But, um, I just, I am, I'm beside myself because I, I, I did, I, I don't know. We we're just trying to do the right thing. And, um, I'm just so humbled and honored that there are so many other veterans and veteran allies out there that just want to be a part of this and want to, you know, a, again, just try and do something about our situation instead of just yelling and screaming at each other. Let's try and find resolution, you know? Um, and that's, that's all we're asking for. We just, we want to have the conversations, you know, I, with my writing staff, for instance, we have, we have numerous writers on our, on our staff and I, I talk to them often about, I don't want you to write 
basically I want you to write dialogue, not division, right? So let's, let's, let's generate intellectual conversation. Let's, let's talk about these issues. Let's, let's debate them rationally and, and have legitimate conversation. And we need to do that in the veteran community. It needs to, it needs to happen here. And our voice, unfortunately, whether we want it to or not, it speaks loud. I mean, look at, look at all the attention former law enforcement and veterans got after storming the Capitol, right? That was kind of the big news buzz was, oh, holy crap, there's all these veterans, right? We always stand out. And when we can do anything to help socially advance those that are being treated in, in you know, and, and experiencing injustices, um, we need to, I don't know, and it's my opinion, we need to do that. And, uh, and so that's what we're trying to do. David, I certainly appreciate you, uh, you know, ripping off the bandaid of some old wounds and, and sharing your story with us and uh, allowing uh, everybody to sort of get uh, an understanding of of how you got to where you are. Uh, it's a personal story, and I know it's not always easy to share, so I thank you for that. And best of luck with Continue to Serve. You can follow him on the web at continuetoserve.vet.vet. You guys can get in contact with David there and, and join the fight and be part of everything that uh, that Continue to Serve does. But most of all, man, I, I appreciate your time and your candor and your honesty, and thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Hey, man, thanks for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey.